If you have your Bibles with you, let's open back up to the book of Mark together. The book of Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If I'm not mistaken, we're going to finish Mark chapter 9 today. Is that right? That is right. Mark chapter 9, that took us a long time. Now that I think about it. Uh, Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one in the pew or in the chair bottom in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to open that one up with us. Uh, if you need a Bible, take that one. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take that one. Uh, we'd love for that to be our gift to you. We love giving those Bibles away. Uh, more people reading the Bible, the better. So Mark chapter 9, big number 9, we are going to be little number 42. Little number 42. All right. Well, as we are turning there, would you bow with me for another word of prayer as we approach God's Word? Father, what we're about to do is big. Father, what we're about to do is bigger than ourselves, bigger than what we can handle. Father, what we're about to do is bigger than the preacher can handle. Father, we need Your grace. We need Your mercy. Father, every topic in Your book is important and weighty. But Father, today we're going to talk about one of the, maybe the weightiest subject of all that sinners deserve to be punished for our sins for eternity in hell by a holy and loving and good God. So Father, we pray. Father, we pray that for believers that we submit ourselves to what Jesus calls us to be and to do. And Father, for non-believers in this room, and Father, there's we should never rest and believe that everybody here is saved. We might not know their names, but Father, there are probably those among us who are not believers. And their destiny is to be separated from You forever in hell. And so, Father, for, for all of the spectrum of, of, uh, of those of us who are going to be sitting under Your Word, Father, from top to bottom, saved and lost, we need Your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart, to till the soil of our heart, to melt our hard hearts so that we can hear the truth of the good news of Jesus. And Father, the good news of Jesus includes very bad news for those who reject the offering of Your Son. And so Father, we ask that You do these things and You are faithful and You are good. And so we, we expect You to do all that we ask in Your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, my friends. Uh, the BBC tells a very interesting story about a na man named Leonid Ragazov. Can you, say, can you say that Ragazov? Don't make fun of me. You try saying it. Leonid Ragazov. Uh, he was the only doctor in a Russian expedition to Antarctica. That seems like a mistake to me. Does that seem like a mistake to you to take only one doctor? So there's one doctor probably 10,000 miles from the other nearest doctor, and guess what happens? He has acute appendicitis. 10,000 miles away from anybody. Cold that we can't even imagine. He's a doctor. He knows what's going on in his body. And he says, 
Uh-oh. He needed an operation, and as the only doctor on the team, guess what he decided was necessary? He was going to operate on himself. Can you imagine? He writes this in his journal. He writes this about, about his experience. He said, still no obvious symptoms that the appendix has ruptured, but an oppressive feeling of foreboding hangs over me. Duh. This is it. I have to think through the only possible way out to operate on myself. It's almost impossible. But I can't just fold my arms up and give up. And so, he indeed he washed himself, washed all the implements, got two volunteers from the crew who were as white as ghosts, as you can imagine, put mirrors in the right place, and he laid down, and he operated on himself and removed his own appendix. And it was successful. And he went off to have a good life, a long life. Isn't that amazing? What, what, what goes through your mind when you think about that? Crazy. Crazy. Scary. Amazing. And does it go through your mind that it's necessary? If he wanted to see life, that was necessary. And the interesting thing for us as believers is to realize that our story as followers of Jesus is much like our Russian doctor friend. To follow Jesus is to perform self-surgery. To follow Jesus, it is necessary to perform self-amputation. To follow Jesus, it is necessary to self Sacrifice. Following Jesus. Following Jesus is to live our lives on the operating table. Following Jesus is to live our lives on the sacrificial altar. And so what we need to ask ourselves, and what I hope we ask ourselves through our time together is this, Am I living my life on the operating table? Am I living my life on the sacrificial altar? Am I removing everything that Jesus asked me to remove? Am I giving up everything Jesus asked me to give up? Don't just take my word for it. Let's read this together. How following Jesus requires self-amputation, Self-surgery and self-sacrifice. Let's read this together. This is Mark, big number nine, little number 42. We're going to go to little number 50. I'll read aloud as you read your Bible to yourself, please. goes like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye 
Then with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, Jesus is telling the disciples what it means to follow Him. They're asking, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? He shows us a child. And Jesus goes on to say, if you want to really know what it's like to follow Me, quit thinking about greatness. Quit thinking about being my general in my army or being my secretary of state or secretary of the treasury. Quit thinking about how you can grow your wealth following Me. Grow your prestige following Me. I'll show you what it means to be a follower of Me. Self-sacrifice. Self-surgery self-amputation. So, if this is what Jesus calls us to do, you follow me. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. If this is what Jesus calls us to, why? Why in the world self-amputation? That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Why in the world? He uses sacrificial language. We'll talk about that in a moment. Why in the world do we sacrifice ourselves to Jesus? That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Why? Why in the Christian life is self-amputation necessary? Our sin means we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Our sin means we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is sin a big deal? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. What does that mean? That hand that is bringing sin is excluding that person from eternal life. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. That eye, that might be the mechanism by which we lust or we judge or we have a critical spirit or we hate, that eye that is the mechanism by which we perform all these sins, that I bring sin that keeps us out of the kingdom of God. Have you ever been excluded from somewhere? You ever walk up, try to go into an establishment and say, this place is not for you. You ever, you ever feel that? The only time I've ever felt that, when we lived in California, I went, Mallory and I went to Rodeo Drive. Ooh. Everyone else in the world calls it rodeo, but they rodeo drive. We just wanted to see what it's all about. We couldn't afford anything. We couldn't afford a, a breath mint in that place. Well, the, the most fancy street of real estate, of, of, of retail anywhere in the world that we went. And we would go into shops, and we're not talking about Tiffany's. They have a gap on rodeo. We went into gap, and security guards would follow me around. They could smell the poor on me. They thought I was going to steal something. They'd follow me. I'd go down this aisle. They'd, they'd be there. I'd go down that aisle. They'd be there. They followed me out the door. It's the only time I've ever felt 
excluded. Perhaps you have a, a better story of a, of a time when you were absolutely, you cannot, this is not for you. Our sin means the kingdom of God is not for us. God will not let sinners into the kingdom. And part of our heart needs to say, oh, I'm, I'm glad about that. I don't want to live in heaven where sin is rampant, do you? No, that's a good thing. But then, of course, what does that also mean? I can't get it. God will not let sinners into the kingdom. This idea Jesus talks about often. He says this in Matthew 5, Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard for entry. I can't make it. Can you make it? I can't make it. I disqualified myself this morning. Did you? Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? God will not let sinners into the kingdom. What must a God be like who has this high of standards? This God that we worship, this God that creates us, holds us in His hands, this God who will judge the quick and the dead, this God is perfectly holy. That's why He does not and cannot let sinners into His presence. He is perfectly holy. To let a sinner into His presence would be like letting a mosquito land on the sun. Will that work out? No. Can't even get close. Habakkuk says this in chapter 1 of that, of that book, You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Holiness is a moral purity that is so above and beyond. It is so separate from who we are. That is the holiness of God. Above and beyond anything we can imagine. This is God's defining characteristic. His holiness is His defining characteristic. Before love, before righteousness, before all-knowing, before all-powerful, His defining attribute is holiness. Being totally separate from everyone else in moral purity and goodness. We see this play out around the throne of heaven. There are created beings called seraphim. These are angels, the angelic beings. And from their creation to eternity present, they will fly around the throne of God. These beings that if we were to see them, we would be so in awe that we might be tempted to worship them. These beings so powerful, we can't even imagine so beautiful, we can't even imagine. These beings, their sole responsibility in their existence is to fly around the throne of God and to sing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
They can't help it. These beings can't help but praise God. They don't sing, but they don't sing loving, 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 although God is. They don't sing righteous, 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 although he is. They don't say wrathful, 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 although he is. They don't say powerful, powerful. They sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's who he is. All of his other attributes stem from his holiness. And this holy God is holy three times over. Holy, holy, holy. Why? Because not only do we have one sun in our solar system, we've got three suns in our solar system. Not only do we have one God who is all holy, we have one God in three persons. Trinity. It is, ins- it is insufficient to say one holy for the God who created all things. We say Holy, 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 God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is if we walked outside and our one son was joined by two sons. How bright would that be? Holy, holy, holy. And this holy God is also a righteous judge. Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels, think about this, a God who feels indignation every day day. What does that mean? This holy, holy, holy God who is a righteous judge looks upon the world of sin and He feels wrath for the wrongdoing and the evil. This righteous judge who is holy, holy, holy will not allow sin into His kingdom. But He is a righteous judge. He is not arbitrary. He is not petty. He is not sinful in His judgments. He is not partial towards the rich. He is a good judge. And He will not allow sinners into His kingdom. Now, let's be very careful to remember who is telling us this. Jesus is, is, is spilling this out for us. He's telling His disciples, the men He loves desperately and dearly. And you can almost hear the pleading in His voice. Listen, I want you there. I want you in the kingdom. But you have to realize to follow Me means you must, you must get rid of all sin in your life because God is holy. And who is saying that? The holy God is telling them this. God the Son who is holy. Be careful. We can think that God the Father is the wrathful one that keeps us out of heaven. And then Jesus comes, He swoops in, and in some miracle or some loophole, He brings us up to the Father who's not too crazy about it. Remember, the Trinity, one God, three persons, one will. Jesus is furious with sin. Furious. Jesus will not let sinners into His kingdom. And yet He walks around and He offers forgiveness. So not only do we not receive the kingdom because of our sin, we do not, He says, cut this hand off so you can enter into the kingdom. But what Jesus speaks most of. And the weight of His message 
It's not on what we will gain if we don't have sin, but what we will lose if we keep sin. Where we will go if we do not discard the sin from our life. Jesus tells us our sin means we deserve the wrath of God in hell. The main thrust of this message is to anything necessary to avoid the wrath of God. That's the thrust of this passage. Do anything necessary to avoid the wrath of God in hell. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. It's a big deal. So what is hell like? What is hell like? What should I, why should I avoid this? What, what is hell like? We have, we have funny caricatures of hell in our culture, don't we? We got the devil that's all red with little pointy uh, thing, horns and, and hooves and a pitchfork, you know. He doesn't look scary. That's a dork. He looks like a dork, doesn't he? Not scary. Or we think of Dante's Inferno. You've, you've heard of this if you haven't read this. Nine circles of hell, and he tried to explain, took a, took a journey and went down into hell, and he, he discovered what hell was like, and just so happens all of his political enemies find themselves somewhere in his book down there in hell, and he talks about it raining worms, and winds blowing you against rocks, and souls turned into gnarled trees, and laying on burning sand, all this stuff that's just kind of a caricature that we go, well, okay. Or our culture tends to think that hell is not that big of a deal. I heard a story about a man who rejects Jesus his whole life. He says, well, me and my buddies, we'll just drive the coal trucks in hell. That'll be us. We'll have a good old time. It's not that big of a deal. The word Jesus uses in this passage for hell is Gehenna. He uses this in verse 43, 45, 47, 48. Gehenna is a way to summarize the wrath of God poured out on hell. Gehenna is a valley southwest of Jerusalem. Before Israel took Jerusalem, this valley, Gehenna, was known for the Canaanite worship of God, Molech in this valley. The worship of the god Molech included primarily sacrificing children to Molech. The statues would have their hands out. Do you remember you recall this? Have their hands out. You would go place the infant on the hands of Molech and you'd set a fire underneath and the child would be burned to death. That's the background of Gehenna. And we want to think that, thank the Lord, Israel came in and took Jerusalem and it was, that was that and it's done. No, this valley, this, this, this history of child sacrifice continued even in the people of Israel. Israelite kings would rise up and they'd be wicked and they would continue to, to sacrifice children in Gehenna. Thankfully, thankfully, between the Testaments, sacrifices ceased and Jerusalem just dedicated this valley that was full of, of terrible history, most wickedness we can imagine. They dedicated this place to be a dump. 
the garbage and refuse of Jerusalem was poured into this valley. Scum and refuse and trash and wild dogs. And when a, a criminal is executed, you toss them into the big refuse pile. And what you would see in this giant dump in Gehenna was constant, never-ending, never-quenched fire. And as you would approach and you would see dead bodies and you would see wild dogs and you would see scum and refuse, you would see Gehenna was wiggling with worms that were devouring the scum, the dead, and the garbage. And that is the way God portrays the destination for all who are under His wrath for their sinfulness. Eternal Gehenna. We see this, and so we see, we begin to understand why Jesus calls people, please! Why He calls people in verse 47, why He calls us, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Other places in Scripture call it outer darkness where a place with eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Child sacrifice, dung, garbage, never-ending fire, never-ending weeping, never-ending rage, never-ending worms. These are all these are all the roommates of unrepentant sinners. So we talked about the what must a God be like to require this, this distance from sin? We talked about holy, holy, holy. That's why this is a good this is a good thing. But I don't think that question is the only one we should ask. We shouldn't just ask, well, what is this God like? What we need to ask and what we don't ask and what we ignore is this question. What must we be like for the holy God to call for such a punishment? What must we be like that the holy God makes hell the destination for sinners like me? Well, we are thoroughly wicked. Psalm 51.5, I am wicked from conception. James 3.6, my tongue is set on fire by the fires of Gehenna. I speak hell. Isaiah 59.7, under the right circumstances, we are all quick to shed blood. You'd never murder anybody, would you? God says in our hearts, in our sinful hearts, outside of Christ, we are quick to shed blood under the right circumstances. Well, maybe my good can outweigh my bad. 
Isaiah 64, 6-7 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true of other people, but preacher, I'm telling you, I'm a good person. Not me. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 2-3. And so, that's who we are. And so in response to that, the holy and good God, Romans 1.18, pours out His wrath against all sin and ungodliness. So we see, we see God's grace even in this passage clearly, right? Where the God who is holy comes down and walks among these people who are so sinful like you and me, who are more sinful than we can imagine. He, he walks around these disciples. And not only that, look at this grace. The God, the Holy One, Holy, holy, holy comes down and he says, listen, there's a place called hell. You don't want to go there. Trust me. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. Cut off your hand. Cut off your feet. Pluck out your eye. Do whatever it takes. What a gracious message. What a merciful message. Give up anything to avoid the wrath of God in hell. And so now the disciples, they're not dopes. They're hearing this like we are and they're saying, hey, I'm, he's speaking metaphorically. Can, can I really enter the kingdom of God if I cut off my hand, pluck out my eye, cut off my feet? Does that solve my problem? If it did solve my problem, I'd be a fool not to, but it doesn't solve my problem. Because my hand is not the one that performs the violence. It's my heart. My feet aren't the ones that just take me where they want to go and then I just find myself in a sinful place. That's not, my eye is not responsible for the lust, the judging, or the covetousness. My fingers, to cut off my fingers so I won't scroll pornography, does not deal with the lust problem in my heart. Can I cut off my tongue and will that take care of my gossiping? No, I got most of that going up here. Of course not. Violence starts inside with hatred. Stealing starts inside with coveting. Coveting begins with dissatisfaction in the things God has given me. Adultery and pornography begin with lust. Gossip begins with a wicked, judgmental heart. Paul will tell us this clearly in Ephesians 2. He says, we are by nature children of wrath. If amputation could solve your problem, how much of your body would be left? Let's be honest with ourselves. How much of your body would be left if amputation was what God called for? Would you have your eyes? Would you have your tongue? Would you get out of childhood without your hands? I'm constantly telling, don't hit your sister. I'm trying to teach my, my 
10-month-old not to bite. Right? Would, would you get out without your hands? Your feet? Your fingers? No. And so, the reality of the situation with the disciples are understanding what they're hearing is there is nothing that we can add or take away from our lives that will be powerful enough to help us escape from the fires of hell. The disciples got to be thinking, I cut my hands off. I wouldn't have any hands left. So Jesus' point is this. Whatever God requires for me to escape His wrath and enter into His peace, I must do. Whatever, I'm going to say it again. Please hear me. Whatever God requires for you to avoid His wrath and enter into His peace, you must do. That's what Jesus is saying. So, the disciples are hearing this and they're confused. They're confused. Well, what do we do? Jesus' point for the disciples is to make them say, what do I do to, to feel helpless in themselves? Do you feel helpless in yourselves? I can't do it. There's nothing I can cut off. There's no amount of amputation necessary or, or that I can perform to be right with God. So what do we do? How can we enter into God's peace? How can we be right with God? How can we avoid hell? The perfect one who needed no amputation was cut off from life for the sins of repentant believers. The perfect one who needed no amputation was cut off from life for the sins of repentant believers. Isaiah 53, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Paul says it this way. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. If you got your all your act together, and I thought you were the best person I've ever seen in my life, and you gave me a million dollars, and you pushed me out of that oncoming train, and you did all these things. I might die for you. Perhaps he says, for a good person, one would even dare die. But God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not unbelievable? After everything we've just gone through, the holiness of God, the wickedness of mankind, is it not unbelievable that that God would come down in flesh, and not only in flesh, but He would die for you while you were still a sinner? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so what Jesus' death has done for all who put their faith in Him is justify justification is being made righteous in the sight of God. How did Jesus do that? He drank the wrath of God for us on the cross. He justified it. He took our penalty. He says, they deserve wrath, but I will drink that for them on the cross. And we are made righteous before God our faith. But not only that, well, we still have a record of sin. We're still not perfect. Well, not only did he drink the wrath of God, but he made it so we can enter into the kingdom because he imputed us his righteousness 
imputation. He credited us for His goodness and obedience. And so while we are still sinners, we are citizens of the kingdom. How can that be? God does not allow sinners because Jesus has credited us with His righteousness. And not only that, justification, imputation, sanctification. The Holy Spirit is in you and He is making you literally perfect. This very moment, He is working on making you perfect. You're sanctification will match your imputation someday. You will be actually, factually perfect. And this is the gift of God. What do we do? Cut this off. No, no, no. You don't, do, you don't cut yourself off. You go to the one who was cut off. It was cut off for you for the glory of God and saving sinners. And this is not... This is, this is not, amputation is not a requirement. Sacrifice is not a requirement. What is required? It is a free gift of grace through faith. This is yourselves. It is a gift of God. So, the good news is God does not require our perfect amputation or our perfect sacrifice to enter into His peace. But does God require amputation and sacrifice from those who have escaped the wrath of God? Yes. I'm going to say that again. Christian, we are saved by grace through faith. He does not require you to amputate and be perfect for you to enter into His peace and avoid His wrath. He does not require that of you. But what does He now that you are saved? What does He require now Following Jesus brings self-amputation and self-sacrifice. Christian, as Jesus leads you away from the fires of hell, He leads you into the fires of sacrifice. It doesn't happen any other way. To follow Jesus is to sacrifice. He turns the metaphor from amputation to sacrifice. He says, everyone... All the disciples are around here. That's who he's talking to. Every the disciples. I'm greatest. You're greatest. I do this. You do that. They're fighting over this. He says, quiet. Everyone will be salted with fire. Better believe that put things in perspective for these petty arguments. They knew what that meant. You salt sacrifices in the Old Testament before you put them in fire. Ezekiel 43, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord as priests shall, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. This symbolized, this symbolized the preservation of our covenant. God salt preserves. This symbolized the flame of relationship with God. Even grain offerings were salted before the sacrifice. So we are not called to just perform self-surgery. No, it's deeper than that. We are called to perform self-sacrifice. Paul will say it this way in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. Do you hear the tone of his voice? I appeal to you. I beg you, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing. What does he mean? We are saved by the wrath of God through the sacrifice of Christ. And to follow Christ means we lift up our own bodies in self-sacrifice. Jesus will say it this way. We, shouldn't, we should expect as much in the book of Mark because Jesus said this last chapter. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his own cross and follow me. Forever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What is he saying? Christians, it is a necessary movement of following Jesus to walk with Him into the sacrificial fires. How many of us? Isn't that just for missionaries? We know some missionaries around here. Isn't that just missionaries? Isn't that just preachers and deacons? I'm not sure I'm on board if I have to sacrifice. You sure it's just for me? How many of us? Everyone will be salted with fire. No one is saved by grace through faith and avoids being a sacrifice. No one is saved by grace through faith and arrives at the kingdom without amputations. So, how can I do this? How can I follow my Savior who sacrificed for me into the fires? Let's be honest with ourselves. We don't like that. Let's be honest with ourselves. We don't talk about that a lot. How do we do this? How can we faithfully follow Jesus into the sacrificial fire? How can I present my body as a living sacrifice? How can I be committed enough to, to cut off these sinful things about me for the sake of Jesus? I'm going to give you a few practical, few practical thoughts on how we can be a living sacrifice for our Savior who sacrificed for us. Let me give you a few. First one, Christian, expect the pain. Expect the pain. My friends, no one follows Jesus without feeling pain. Any believers want to say amen to that? Any believers have felt that in your life? Following Jesus has been hard? Expect the pain. Listen, we are so, we are so conditioned by our culture to expect comfort and lazy boy Christianity. That's what we're good at. I'm okay. I'm even good. I could send my money to other people and let them sacrifice. No, we are called to painful following, courageous following. Give us courageous men and women who are willing to suffer and sacrifice for the good of the glory of God. If we have a church filled with people who expect pain from following Jesus and can embrace pain in following Jesus, we will see God do a work in church 
Do the hard things. Expect it. Don't, Peter says something like this. Don't, don't feel pain and then expect something crazy has happened. Don't, don't just expect trials and think there's a glitch in the system. This is following Jesus. This is following Jesus. Following Him and feeling pain is about being a follower of Jesus. Second thing, guard the salt. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Guard the salt. Christians, please understand, we can lose our saltiness. We can get so comfortable in our lives, so comfortable with our sins that we refuse to self-amputate think we've done enough, that we could sit back on our laurels, that we don't have to work anymore for the good of the gospel, that we can let other people do these things. We can lose our saltiness. We can say, that sin is not that bad. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do this. We can do it. Anyone else know that in themselves? Jesus says, be salty in yourself. When salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Christian, do you find yourself thinking, I'm good enough. I've got faith. I don't need to sacrifice. I don't need to cut off my hand. I don't need to fight that sin. My friends, my friends, we must fight the battle with sin. He says, if anyone comes after me, he will self-amputate. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That is what Jesus desires for us. If your, le- if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. All of those things we must do to follow Jesus faithfully. Don't lose your saltiness. I'll never forget a professor in seminary said it this way. Stop sinning! Last day of class. This guy's 65 years old, been in ministry his whole life. He said, okay, this is the last thing and I'm going to tell you. Stop sinning! said it like that. Bye. I'll see you next semester. That's what he said. That stuck with me. Why would he say it like that? Sin's not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Don't lose your saltiness. That's what he's saying. Guard your saltiness. Finally. Finally. How in the world can we do this? How in the world can I be motivated to make the hard decisions? Maybe yours is gossip. Is yours gossip? That is something that will torpedo a church. Is yours gossip? Maybe you need to cut your tongue off. Is yours pornography? Maybe your sacrifice is to cut your fingers off. You got to wipe that out of your life. Maybe yours is a critical spirit. Maybe yours is hatred. Maybe yours is racism. Maybe yours is lust. Maybe yours is premarital sex. Maybe yours is adultery. Whatever it is, cut it off. And how how can I be motivated to that? The same way we're motivated for everything in our Christian life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you will find joy in self-amputation. The more you'll say, I want to rip this out for Christ. I want to cut this off for Christ. Look what He's done for me. I would love to sacrifice for Him. And that's a hard place to be. we got to fight to get there. But to be close to Him is to feel the joy in making sacrifices for His glory. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're not trying... Don't be motivated by fear. Fear is a poor motivator. 
be motivated by fame or self-worth. Be motivated by a love of Jesus who climbed on the cross to sacrifice for you. Find joy in following Him even into the flames. If the world could see Christians with spiritual eyes, they would see men and women with amputations. If you could see me with spiritual eyes, I pray you would see hands removed, eyes removed, tongue removed, feet removed. If the world could see us, they would see men and women laying their lives down in sacrifice for Jesus and they might pity us However, if the world knew what we knew, if the world knew what we knew, they would see our amputations not as pitiable, but as glorious. If the world knew what we knew, they would see our amputations not as painful, but as a small sacrifice for the joy that we have in Christ. And if they knew the Jesus that we know they would know that Jesus never leaves His people crippled. They would know that Jesus is never going to leave His people blind. If they knew the Jesus that we know, they would know that He will make us new. And He will make us new soon and very soon. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Christian, you are saved by grace through faith. Christian, there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. It is a free gift. Christian, because we have a free gift of God through Jesus Christ, may we follow Him out of the fires of hell and into the fires of sacrifice.